I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show i haven't done a an episode since the end of last year so i'm a little rusty but here we go okay we'll do it together it'll be great (laughs) so many so many so many damn books Hello, and welcome to So Many Damn Books, A Blessing, A Curse, A Podcast. My name is Christopher, and joining me in the Zoom version of the Damn Library is Marie Helene Bertino. I'm so excited for you to be here. Hi, Christopher. Hi, So Many Damn Books. It's really nice to be here again. Glad to have you back. Um, Marie Helene Bertino is the author of Parakeet, 2 a.m. in the Cat's Pajamas, one of my absolute favorite novels of all time. She's the winner of many literary prizes and fellowships, um, as well as releasing the book Safest Houses of Short Stories. And she's here to talk her brand new novel, her newest triumph, Beautyland. I absolutely loved it. I'm so excited to talk to you about it because there's lots to talk about. There's lots to talk about. I can't wait. Let's do it. Let's run this thing. Let's talk the drink. <laughs> I have always wanted to play with Midori. Um, I've never bought it. I know it was like a, from the 80s. I feel like that was when it was like a big deal. Like the Midori Sour um, was a big cocktail. I think the 80s and 90s. And I just love the color. And immediately when I was thinking of this book, which deals with, um, you know, life on other planets, extraterrestrials, I was like, it's time for me to use this otherworldly colored um, liqueur. And so I'd never actually had a Midori Sour or used it at all before. So I bought um, I bought a bottle and it is a really strange otherworldly flavor. Have you do you have much um, history with Midori? I have. No, I have absolutely no history with Midori. And it's funny, I showed this cocktail recipe to someone who said, Midori, isn't that what like old proper women drink in Florida? (laughs) And I was so (laughs) confused and intrigued by that description Mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that an alcoholic drink would even have such a visceral description as that. So you really picked a really evocative liqueur. So that's what I started to build the drink around. And it is, it tastes of honeydew melon. That's the flavor that is most like on top. And if you use too much of it, it tastes like bubblegum, um, which is interesting. <laughs> so I've, I've found a mix. Um, it's not unlike a Midori Sour, although um, I was me- messing around with different citrus mixes because I thought grapefruit would play really well with it. So this is Midori white rum, um, 
a mix of lemon, lime, and grapefruit juice. And then um, I made lemon simple syrup, which is just taking sugar and you um, grate lemon rind into the sugar and leave it for um, a few hours. And then when you make simple syrup with it, all those lemon oils get extracted into the simple syrup and it makes this really fantastic. Like it's the best, most lemony, but sweet. It, it's, it tastes like um, hot dog on a stick uh, lemonade. Anyway, um, if you know what that's <laughs> like. Um, so mixing this all together, I made a drink called Faxing Other Worlds, which is of course what is happening in Beautyland. Um, it's a beautiful otherworldly green. It seems very alien. And I recommend trying it. I mean, like find a diff find a smaller bottle of Midori than I did. I, the only one I could find was a liter. So I'm gonna have all. I'm gonna have to keep playing with this drink. If anybody at home has favorite things that they've done with Midori, uh, please uh, <laughs> let me know on uh, Instagram or any of the social places where you can find so many damn books. So thank you for putting sending me on this journey of and giving me the excuse to finally try Midori. That is so exciting. I'm so happy that I facilitated that kind of journey for you. I think you're going to have to marinate your turkey in that Midori come <laughs> November. I, I feel like it's going to stick around for a long time, Christopher. That's a lot of Midori. It's so much. Um, and you really only want a little bit. You want like the smallest <laughs> amount in each one. So I'm really, I'm going to figure it out. So there's got there's got to be, there's something. Um, to, I, I know that there's actually a, um, a riff on the Long Island iced tea called the Tokyo iced tea where you do it with. So maybe I'll start getting really into those. Um, so that's the drink. Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we get to your book, one more, um, there's one more section that everyone loves, a celebration of consumerism. It's called, What Did You Buy? Marie, have you bought anything uh, wonderful recently? I have, yes. I bought, oops, I'm showing this to you even though your listeners won't be able to see it. I bought Milk, Blood, Heat, a collection of stories from Dontiel Moniz. Mm. And I have been reading one short story every morning Ooh. because unfortunately that's all I have time for, although I'm grateful that I have time for even that. And it has been so lovely. She published this a few years ago, and it and it was, you know, highly lauded. And and now I'm, I get to read why. And these stories are just really, really beautiful stories of daughterhood and friendship um, in Florida. Mm. And I'm I'm just really loving how specific and exact she is on the line. A lot of amazing observations, especially of daughters to their mothers. So it's been it's been a treat. So I bought that, and then I also re-upped on my baby, my Maybelline baby bell lip gloss. Oh yeah. Um, at the dollar store, which is my <laughs> favorite store in South Brooklyn. It's the dollar store on Church Ave. Oh no, now the secret's out, but that's okay. I love the dollar store because it has, it's so varied and because I can afford almost everything in it. <laughs> I can go in there and be like, I can buy almost anything in here. I could buy 10 things. I can buy, I can buy eight and a half things today. What a, what a glorious day. This though might be familiar to um, your listeners who 
are my age in their late 30s, 40s, um, because this lip gloss was popular when we were young and when we would go roller skating, which holds hands with Beautyland and, and the lifespan of that. Um, and I think that this dollar store probably has had this Baby Bella lip gloss since that time. So <laughs> I scooped up a dollar lip gloss and I have to say it's one of the best lip glosses in the world. Still holds up to this day. And I highly recommend it. So those nice. two things, um, I love two it. elements of beauty, I'd say a short story collection and some lip gloss. That's so great. How about you? I, um, I got sent this. I'm really excited about this novel. Um, it's due out at the, um, in April by Emmett North called in universes. Have you heard of this title? No, uh, it's going to come out from Harper. It's about a queer physicist who's exploring the multiverse for universes where they are in some way connected to this sculptor they're obsessed with. Ooh, love it. That sounds, I just think that that sounds great. Um, I, I do, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried about the multiverse and how often people are using it. Um, <laughs> and I think that there, we, we might be reaching like a, a critical mass of multiverse, but Mm -hmm. This seems like a completely new take on it. So I guess I'm wrong. It's like I keep saying, like, I don't need another dystopian novel. And then I read another one that's great. And I'm like, oh, I guess I do still like all of them. <laughs> it's true. And then I also got this book that I thought you would appreciate in particular. Um, it's called uh, Letters to E.T. It's a really small little slim thing. And it really is actually a collection of letters that people wrote to E.T. back in the 80s, back when the movie came out. Like, I, I, I just want to read one to you. Please. If you don't mind. Yes. Uh, this is from September 28th, 1982. Dear E.T., I want you to come to Earth so you can go to the school and meet my friends. We will have a lot of fun together. I will go to Mars with you. I will go and get a jacket. When we come from Mars, I will go and eat hot dogs and ask if you want a hot dog. Your friend, Tony. Oh, Tony. That's a good... Tony's going to treat E.T. really well yeah, if he that's... comes to visit. He's going to get a jacket and buy him a hot dog. <laughs> or he's like, that's amazing. if you let me come to Mars with you, I am a responsible person. I know it's pretty cold there, so I'll bring a jacket. I will make sure that I bring a jacket. I will be oh, prepared, E.T. Yeah, that's such really, a great... really sweet. It's such a... I honestly was actually getting a little like... Um, choked up reading some of these letters they're so sweet and E.T. is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time it's such an mm -hmm. incredible movie it always gets me um and me I think too. it's one of those things that if you watch it young enough you will always be obsessed with uh, mm -hmm. aliens and I think that it's the kind of like the perfect companion to Beautyland in some ways because it is letters to E.T. it's it's faxes off into the into the into outer space um and the first i heard of beautyland was back when parakeet was announced as they were announced together back in 2018 um mm -hmm. so it may, i i would love to hear a little bit about the journey there um from 2018 and and it being announced as like and and summarized as as the second book in a deal um mm -hmm. for people that don't know deal memos don't always go into the second book it's like oh they got and then a second one too 
Um, but yours was very specific that this is this was it. Oh, that's true. They don't often describe the second book. Yeah, that's true. And, and this was the first time that I had done anything like that. Sell two books. And I was filled with trepidation because I don't actually like to sell what you don't have. Mm. And I had the description. I had the first 60 pages and I had a really good idea of where it would go, but I hadn't yet written the entire thing and when it was sold in, in 2018. Mm -hmm. So, but my agent, my um, really lovely, very wise agent, Claudia Ballard, said that she had never heard me talk about work the way I talked about Beautyland. So it was, so Claudia actually recommended that we sell both books at the same time mm. because she said, there's just something about the way you're talking about Beautyland that is, that feels a little different. And it's funny because ever since pretty much everything involved with Beautyland has felt a little different, a little enhanced, a little charmed. Mm. So it's, it's been interesting. So yeah, in 2018, there was that little description and then I, it was based on a short story that I had written in 2012. So the ideas had been simmering for a very long time. Wow. Talk to me about this word charmed. What, what else has been charmed about Beautyland? The writing process felt very charmed because Beautyland is about a woman who believes she's an extraterrestrial taking notes on human beings to fax to her superiors on a faraway planet that she only has a sense of. And to write her entire lifespan, I had to research the, I had to research study the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that Carl Sagan founded. I had mm -hmm. to research what we knew about extraterrestrials. Um, I researched Carl Sagan, NASA, space, everything. And each time, so Adina, the extraterrestrial protagonist of Beautyland, every time she has a formative experience, I would Google the date to see if anything had happened celestially. Mm. And every time something enormous had happened celestially, which felt charmed to me. Wow. The biggest example of that being I wanted her to have my birthday or around around my birthday just because it would be easier to write years that I knew. And when I Googled September of 1977 to see if anything had occurred that I could maybe, you know, futz up and make seem more important, what had occurred was the launching of Voyager 1, which was pretty significant. And I, I mean, I was covered in chills when I figured that out. And so Voyager 1 becomes a sibling to her mm -hmm. throughout. They they reach middle age together. They encounter certain experiences that are similar. And that's just one of many examples of the book just feeling a, a little a little um maybe charmed and and, and maybe blessed from another place <laughs> <laughs> for lack of for lack of a better description. Mm. Voyager 1 is a ship that like launched a thousand novel premises. Like I feel like so people took that golden record and it has it just a capture and I I fully yes, I I too am captured by the imagination of making it and 
who and how and why and those things chosen and everything about the Voyager one is so fascinating. It's so it's so mm-hmm. cool that it seems like one of those things where you went and you were like, when did Voyager happen? Okay, that's when I'll start the book. The, having it happen the other way around, that's cool. Mm-hmm. It captured my imagination too, as a music fan, really, yeah. because of the golden record. But I, I can't say that I had it in my mind as, I, I wasn't, well, clearly, I didn't know that it was in September of 1977 that it was launched. So yeah, they definitely happened the other way around. And it's something too that, it, it kind of froze a particular kind of optimism in Amber Voyager one and the, the process of the golden record. So it's something you can actually argue with now. Like what would I have chosen to be on the golden record? And, and it's this like, it's this beautiful exercise, I think in hope and optimism that you can now look at in 2024 and be like, well, if I had to make a, the uh, the most important mixtape that's ever been made of human <laughs> experience what would i do and in a way actually writing beautyland was my way of doing it yeah. i decided to include in adina's transmissions what i found to be significant about human beings right right <laughs> and I, I i felt that the the transmissions in particular they feel stylistically different um than the prose of the traveling of the novel and they're just they sometimes read like little like talk of the town essays like (laughs) observations of things um but they're just always so delightful um I I would actually like to hear about how you were crafting those were you sitting down and it's like time to write some Adina transmissions or did they come as the as the narrative uh spun out mostly the latter, some of the former. So the transmissions came first because I had been collecting transmissions on human beings just for my own amusement, really, on a folder on my desktop called Notes on Human Beings. And I would collect things that I thought, essentially it was an exercise in defamiliarization, but very often... I'm walking around feeling already defamiliarized. So I come across certain human customs and they seem very strange to me. Um, Like, and I keep using this example, but it's one of the first ones I wrote, which is that humans excrete water from their eyes Mm -hmm. when they're sad, happy, or sometimes just frustrated. I was similarly transfixed by that. And so they came first And then Adina came second and the character who would be writing that came second. And then when it became book length, I had to fill in a few. And, but my, my antennae, no pun intended, um, (laughs) were all, was already, were already tuned to that. So I had already been walking around gathering, gathering these ideas for transmission. I feel like that makes this novel even more personal because it like contains this other project of yours it's the most personal thing I've ever written can I say that I don't know it's pretty I think everything I write is connected to some desire of mine or, or or interest or vice or question that I'm seeking to untangle but Beautyland is the most I've ever written about my own childhood 
mm-hmm. um, in Northeast Philadelphia. And the characters who peopled my childhood in that neighborhood and attempting to connect some of the experience, some of the experiences I had to literally the stars. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that, I think that is also different about this book. This book also feels like um, a departure in the sense that the last two, you know, 2 a.m. takes place in the course of like 48 hours. Um, Parakeet also pretty contracted timeline. And like you were saying, mm-hmm. this one, years and years, um, what's, what challenges arise from a, a difference like that? And and was any of that sort of a, a response like, I want to try one where I'm, I last 20 years instead of three days? That necessarily wasn't that deliberate. However, it does seem like I was taking it step by step, like one day, one week, and now one whole lifespan. Yeah. I wasn't doing it deliberately, but perhaps it was happening unconsciously. I think the challenge is, well, I mean, I, 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 a lot of opportunities arose when I realized that to tell the story correctly, I would have to tell an entire lifespan. Um, things like, well, first, what would you include about someone's lifespan so that it would even be interesting? What would you exclude? The opportunity to show how long-term friendships and a mother-daughter relationship can grow and bend and change, expand and diminish through time was an opportunity and a challenge um, in a way that felt authentic. The opportunity to talk a little about age directly Mm -hmm. and also physically, how her human body um, in a, in all of its specificity and proclivity would be aging throughout this particular time. And that was the work of the book. And then also what she would be transmitting to her mm-hmm. people. I think, and then structurally speaking, the biggest challenge was how to end something like Beautyland. And how to end a story whose main conceit is, is this woman who she says she is or not? Do you believe in this woman? That's a hard plane to land, (laughs) so to speak. And when I read speculative work, which is after my own heart, I'm always thinking how, and and I'm excited. And when I'm reading a, a piece of speculative work that I love and I'm loving, I get nervous and fearful And I think, how are they going to land this? Because I know how difficult speculative work especially is to Mm -hmm. conclude in a way that feels satisfying, in a way that isn't a cop-out. Did you land this plane differently a few times? Or has this always been the ending? I got the ending immediately once I changed the point of view. So it had been first-person point of view from Adina's Mm -hmm. perspective. And then as soon as I realized that it had to be in third person and I began to switch it into third person, the ending came immediately. And that was actually another moment where I had chills all over. And I realized, and I can't say too much about this because the ending, the ending, what I will say is the ending influences the way you see the entire book. 
-hmm. and the ending is itself asking for participation from the reader in a particular way. Mm -hmm. so, and that came to me immediately when it, the book went into third person. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the sort of one, it's, it's funny as just, as just like a creative writing thing. And as as sort of like a, a note that you never give, or at least I wouldn't in a creative writing class. It's just like, I like what you've done with your novel, but what about, what if you changed the point of view? Um, mm -hmm. What is, it would be a tall ask for anyone other than yourself. I feel like you're the only, like you can be the only barometer of a decision like that with a project. Um, seems like a, a crazy, crazy note to give. I completely agree with you. And in my <laughs> workshops, when students say that to one another, I stop them and I say, that is an enormous thing to ask another writer. Why don't you list a few reasons why you feel it has to, that voice has to change. <laughs> Something that happens a few times in this novel that I loved, um, and I don't think it's a, giving anything away to talk about this, but is that she does a few times sit someone down and say, I am an alien. I am from another planet. I don't know a lot about it, but I have this fax machine and I send my transmissions. And then you're sort mm -hmm. of as a reader, very primed and ready for like, okay, like I, and every time it was like extremely exciting uh, to me. And it's some of my favorite moments of the book. Can you talk about making those moments? Because it seems like, if you you know, the type of like, if you go too far out, all of the gears and everything are is um, visible to the reader. But if you stay too close, it's not as cathartic as you want it to be. Thank you for sharing that with me that those were some of your favorite moments and that it and and that you felt anticipation in those moments. That's useful for me to know. And I also... I also really liked those moments because the act of telling someone your authentic self, yes. whether you're an alien or not, is a sacramental space. It's a sacred space. And I felt like those moments were vestibules, you know, these these protected moments in the book. And I had a a responsibility to present them realistically. So she doesn't always get the response I feel she deserves, but I was, but I, I felt, I felt like Adina receives the response that, that would be realistic from the, the people she decides mm -hmm. to share herself with. And so my heart broke a little and soared in, in places. And I felt like it's the, you know, the correlation between a moment like that and the experience of coming out, the experience of sharing a secret with someone, sharing your background with someone, sharing, you know, a painful trauma from your childhood with someone. Um, that was very deliberate for me. Like I, I very much saw that as saw those moments as um, coming out narratives in in a very particular way. Adina is coming out as an extraterrestrial, but I think the response she receives echoes those those other narratives as well. That feels like a, a volatile space to be in and pulling from. Volatile? It depends. It depends. I mean, there are there's certainly 
are still communities where someone's authentic self wouldn't be valued or supported. Um, in that way, it could be volatile. Um, but I still think that it's important when you can to share your authentic self because it makes everybody feel like freer. Mm. I actually do believe that. And so I think Adina, I think Adina in those moments is trying to ask the people in her life or is trying to gift the people in her life a way of seeing her more clearly, mm. even as she's trying to connect and live more deeply and more intentionally in her own life. So, yeah, yeah I think I think they're charmed moments. And I also thought something that felt very true to me is that someone so intentional could end up in like an unintentional relationship or, or one where, <laughs> you know, one where it's like, this person isn't fully yeah. right for me. And you wonder like, how did they end up? They're not quite right. But, uh-huh. uh, but she's so intentional in everything uh-huh. else. But you can see how like, you know, one thing leads to another with that relationship. The, the one of the central relationships in the book. Might be a good moment to say she is a hundred, well, in her estimation, she is a hundred percent alien. She's also a hundred percent woman in America, (laughs) (laughs) you know, coming of age in America. So her experience is, you know, that of, of a woman who meets, you know, a cool artistic person at a bar and over the course of time gets deeper and deeper into this relationship that she doesn't understand and doesn't know that she necessarily wants Mm -hmm. either. And I think that relationship teaches her a little of her sexuality. Right. Does she even want sex? Yeah, exactly. That maybe she's not a sexual person, which was a narrative that I haven't often seen in American fiction. Um, Actually, I just received a, a beautiful letter today from someone who is writing a character on the ace spectrum and to thank me for writing an ace character um, because she said she only ever reads ace in YA and hasn't read it in adult fiction. And I thought that was interesting. And I've only ever read it in Japanese, the work of um, contemporary Japanese short story writers, normally women. Mm. And so I, I, I think it's really cool if Adina is giving other writers permission to kind of branch out from the, your character must be defined by who they want to have sex with and they must want to have sex all all the time. You know, it, it seems pretty silly once you think about it. Like there are lots of people who that's not the, the defining characteristic of their life. Right. It's not their motivation. And so I loved exploring that. One of my favorite things about that with Adina is early on, there's a transmission where she's just like, I'm pretty, I need a lot of corrective stuff for someone who was sent here to like, help. Like, is this part <laughs> of like becoming normal? And there, and the, she, she does get transmissions back too a lot of the time she's, she's in com- communication, which is, is fascinating to me, but then being like, yeah, you tell us, we don't know. Um, but I, I loved how she's like, I'm, uh, I'm pretty broken. Is that on purpose? Like what's happening there? You know, oh, she, yeah, she does need a lot of corrective stuff. And and she has a mother who can't afford a lot of that stuff. So she's like, wow, what? why did you send me to this place in this form? 
Um, and I think, I think that's a play on what is considered typical and what is considered atypical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another, that's the other side where we're branching out of what I've already said about what was fun to explore mm-hmm. about Adina because she's been described already as um, weird or strange or quirky. And, and I'm thinking, gosh, I don't, I think she's totally typical to me. Like to me, right. she's not strange at all. Like I was asked, why is Adina so weird? And it's funny because I mean, people have asked me the same thing about myself and mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Oh gosh, I don't, I mean, I don't think she's weird at all. And even that question is so interesting. Like, why would you ever think that she is? It seems like a strange question, um, just just from an interviewing perspective, but whatever. Um, was there anything else that you read um, while you were writing or before you wrote that um, helped you in, in crafting this book? Yes, actually, it's right behind me. Um, something I absolutely love as an artifact is Murmurs of Earth, which is the Voyager interstellar record that was written by Carl Sagan and his team for the Voyager, for the Voyager expeditions. And so in this is like every single thing they included on Voyager and why they included it. Mm -hmm. And it just goes a little more into depth about their reasons for everything than I was able to find online. And one of the things were all of the greetings that are included on Voyager 1 in all different languages from all different cultures. And one of them was hello to all the beings in the universe. And that, I thought that was so charming. And I actually borrowed that that structure for my dedication, which is to all to every Adina in the universe, um, because Beautyland itself, as an object, the novel itself is also kind of like a message in a bottle mm. out to you know readers to see if anyone knows what I mean, right. and if anyone feels the same way, and if if there are any if there are any other people out there who who maybe feel the same way that Adina does. Something else I noticed in this book, and and it it felt like a hearkening back to 2AM at the cat's pajamas, is just like this capturing of a youthful voice, of capturing a childhood perspective. You seem very gifted at, at calling up how children think about the world. Um, either as aliens or as wannabe jazz singers. Can you talk about writing childhood perspectives? I definitely didn't anticipate writing two big ones. I thought about Madeline Altamari, the protagonist of 2AM, as I was writing Adina, because I wanted to make sure that they were differentiated. Mm -hmm. But they're also in the same city. Yeah. And so I, I had discussions with myself if they were in the same classroom who would they be to each other just to to kind of make sure that that they were different enough mm-hmm. thankfully madeline altamari is a pretty uh headstrong brassy cursing 
type A <laughs> and Adina is not. Yeah. I think Adina is the quieter one. Yeah. I I'd got this. I'd get the sense that they'd probably stick away from one another, actually. <laughs> probably. Yeah, I think so. I think Madeline is too driven to be a singer. And I think Adina is too driven as being an observer in that reporter and, and journalist perspective. But similarly, what they do have in common, and this is true for a lot of people I, for some reason, write about, they are characterized by vocation, both mm. Madeline and Adina in, in different ways. And so they are comprised solely of this desire to perform this particular job, quote unquote. And that's true for a lot of characters that I write, I've noticed. How long into the writing of um, Beautyland did you start doing this sort of comparison um, between Madeline and, and Adina? Oh, maybe toward the middle to late stages of revision. Mm. Because up until that point, I wouldn't have known how much of the childhood I would be keeping. Oh. So the book is separated into five developmental stages in Adina's life, which also, again, coincidentally coincided with the fact that there are five developmental stages in the life of a star. Hmm. So the first part, only the first two parts, I would say, really fall within the realm of Adina's childhood. Uh-huh. And then she's growing up from there, um, from the first two parts. So it wasn't as much of a childhood, thankfully, um, as Madeline's. So I didn't have to reckon with it as much as I did in 2 a.m. Mm. Well, it's still fe- it, it does feel very different. Um, it just it, it felt great, though, because I just like your writing about kids. So I was I was glad to be back in <laughs> a, a kid mindset with you and back in Philadelphia, too. What is it about aliens? What I mean, you know? Why? Why? <laughs> what do you think it is? Ah, uh, you know, I've had a good long time to ruminate on this very topic. So I maybe I do have a couple ideas about this very, very important, interesting question. I think that aliens represent an outsider perspective. I think they also represent an opportunity for escape. I know that the reason governing bodies search for aliens is because of the motivating question, are we alone? We being human beings. And that almost implies we're lonely here. We want friends, but there's so many goddamn many human beings I don't know why we would feel lonely these days. I also think it's tinged with we've really messed up this planet. We had these opportunities and we've blown them. Is there a possibility that there's something else out there, like another way to live? (laughs) Adina finds out the truth. I, well, in my estimation, the truth of what, you know, the, the stereotypical quote unquote alien is um i and i won't say it but her superiors through the lessons in her night classroom 
tell her this is what the aliens that you know are reported about in National Geographic that land in Santa Fe, New Mexico and take people hostage. Like this is what they are. They exist and this is what they are. And mm -hmm. I feel like I think aliens capture a certain imagination. But here's my question. Why do we always assume that aliens will be homicidal, murderous, antagonistic, capitalist? <laughs> Why do we always assume that aliens will come here as colonizers? I, I think that's one of the reasons I love E.T. is because E.T. is here to collect botanical samples. He's a gentle alien and his people are benevolent and gentle. So he's he's a botanist. <laughs> and I feel like that would be, if you think about it, when we are sending the probes to space, we are not sending them with the idea if we find anything, we'll kill them. I mean, at least I hope not. Right. I don't know the space foreign policy personally either. So. <laughs> well, I do. <laughs> and <laughs> we don't know none of us know it because they're keeping it secret um it, we're only getting it in dreams and drabs but i guess i just am curious as to why we think aliens will come here and murder all of us i would also hold the possibility that they would also be coming here to collect and gather information mm. yeah i've always assumed that they wouldn't be killing us out of homicidal nature they'd be just like in the same way of like if you picked a flower that flower is dead mm -hmm. now but you can right. do all sorts of things with that dead flower there's lots to discover within it um i just think that there'd probably be a lot of like collateral damage from a scientist that doesn't know what humans are that's true i mean et killed a few flowers not to branch out into et but you know branching out into et I feel like it's a perfect movie. I also think it's just one of the best movies that's ever been made. I think it's perfect. And one thing that Steven Spielberg has said about E.T. is that the adults were always seen from the level of, like the height level of a child. So adults, mm -hmm. like they're like blurred shadows many times in in the movie and like with their flashlights and and they're always seen from the child's perspective. And I I thought about that when I was talking in Beautyland when Adina is talking about human beings and when she's talking about adults and in that way it it is shared with the little prince and the ideas mm -hmm. of um, adults adult human beings and the little prince so all all three of these works that have mm -hmm. aliens in them are really suspicious of adult human beings <laughs> yeah well yeah, I mean, as as the little prince notes, you know, they they never see um, the elephant in the snake. Right. You you brought the little prince as as the um as the book for book club. Yeah. By Antoine de Saint Exupéry. My relationship to this book was French class, mm. translating it into English, and like never it it might as well have it was like a one-to-one -one. I had no reading comprehension of it at all it was a it was a French vocabulary exercise 
And ever since people, it has come up like, oh, did you read The Little Prince? Like, oh, yeah. And reading mm -hmm. it now, um, actually reading it for talking about it with you, I realized, oh, I fully didn't read this. I didn't, I don't remember this book in any way, shape or form. So I was mm -hmm. very glad to um, actually read a book that I have sort of pretended to read for many years. So <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. Uh, what what made you recommend it? Despite, I mean, other than the obvious thematic connection. That it is referenced in Beautyland also through, well, at first through her Italian class as she's stumbling through the declensions um, that it contains. Um, the Little Prince is, I would say, if if I were forced to name my favorite book, I would say it's The Little Prince. Um, wow. It's French, and I am I am French, and it's weird, and I like weird things, <laughs> and I am weird. It is deceptively simple. I think many people either feel that they've already read The Little Prince. Or and haven't, or that it's a children's book. Mm -hmm. And I guess you could read it to your kids, but it is not only a book for children. I think it contains some really essential truths. And it's more honest than a lot of, well, a lot of children's books, a lot of adult books. It also holds it holds a lot of differing ideas regarding relationships and how you love. So the idea of the little prince and his rose, which famously um, was said to be Antoine de Saint-Exupéry and his lover, the Countess, the Countess was was supposed to be the Rose and his and their mercurial relationship. And I just love how each episode that the Little Prince relays to this marooned pilot figure who has crash landed into the desert contains so much strangeness, wonder, um, death macabre feeling i just i've never read anything as singular and unique and i just i just love it obviously i just love it so so much it's helped me in my writing it's helped me in my life i i just can't say enough i i'm and i'm also a fan of his and his life so he was a pilot and he did crash land and it was based on his experience crash landing. The other thing, and I'll, I will say about The Little Prince, and then I will, I promise, shut up, <laughs> is that the ending, well, it has my favorite dedication of all time. And it also has my one of my favorite endings of all time. And I really do, I, I perhaps unfairly base whether or not I like anything by its ending. And The Little mm -hmm. Prince, has one of my favorite endings because it allows for two different possibilities and it does not let you off the hook. It does not let the reader off the hook. In the same way, it's not lost on me that Beautyland also has two different possibilities. Either Adina is who she says she is, or she is like a troubled 
deluded woman. And that require that like that request for reader participation to fill in the book's comprehension is delectable to me. And when I discovered that as like a teenager, when I first read it, I was hooked. I was addicted to trying to write in a similar vein. I love everything that you've been saying. I love all of this love for this book. It's, it's so, um, I feel it. And I feel how it sneaks up on you, even in, um, P.L. Travers, um, one of the original reviews of the book, she says, the little prince will shine upon children with a sideways gleam. It will strike them in some place that is not the mind and glow there until the time comes from, for them to comprehend it. Hmm. And like I a star. feel that for this book that it like, it takes a minute and it lives within you. You know, something that struck me in this reading of it for me this time was a very little like, it wasn't, it was something that one of the characters sort of says offhand, just like no one knows how to do anything anymore. They just go to a store and buy it. Mm. And of course, like that's not, I mean, like, you hear that from people all the time, but hearing it sort of offhand from this like child alien, it feels, uh, it felt different. And it does make me wonder about like what, what we've, what we've lost and also that we've instead also made stores really complicated too so like you have to have some sort of like understanding of stores to walk out with anything that you meant to but i i, I was also looking into the writing um the history of it and he wrote part of it in central park in an apartment in central park south i didn't know it was written in new york mm-hmm. it feels so like otherworldly um and then he it was so hot mm-hmm. that a friend of his was like oh i'll send you someplace in Connecticut, it'll be fine. And it sends him to a 22 room mansion, which I just, it seems crazy to me that this wonderful, small, perfect little fable was written partially in like a ridiculous manse is, um, is very funny to me. <laughs> that is funny. I didn't know that part. I have visited his apartment where he wrote The Little Prince. I mean, from the outside, you can find it because it's on, it's near um, 59th Street where the Botero sculptures are. Oh, okay. I'm forgetting what that's called. Um, it's there. And then the Countess lived on the other side of the park. And I mean, they're like fables that he could see her, her patio from his apartment or something, but they never lived together, which I also thought was romantic. So he was also writing it in a state of, well, I guess I shouldn't assume what kind of state he was in, but it's often assumed that he was in a state of longing for her as he was writing it, which makes sense because the whole thing is whether or not the rose gets eaten by the sheep. Do you have a favorite guy, a favorite planet? Oh yes. I like when he meets the fox Mm. because this is something that definitely glimmered in my mind until I understood it. I thought the fox was awful and so mean, and I did not understand the, the, the idea of taming someone. And I still wrestle with what that word is in translation. The fox is essentially trying to teach the little prince how to, how to tame something and someone 
and the fox is asking to be tamed. And I've I've read The Little Prince a lot, and I collect versions of it. And each time I I, I wrestle with what I make of that, what I make of the fox and the little prince and the idea of being tamed and whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, or somewhere in the middle and where exactly in the middle. I don't know. Do, do you have any thoughts about that? The, that word tame in this book and the fox and the little prince? Yeah, it, it did. It did strike me. Um, I felt like I was curious what they meant by tamed too, because there's something about how it makes the fox special and unique to be tamed, even though he was wild before. Mm-hmm. And I have to admit that I'm reading a, a different novel about trickster foxes that <laughs> turn into humans and then turn back into foxes, according to, um, I believe it's Chinese mythology. Um, so, you know, foxes are, are tricksters in, in mm-hmm. many different types of literature. So there's something to, there too. Is is the fox holding that space in the little prince as well? I'm not. I don't know. I know there there's mythology around like a man marrying who he thinks is a beautiful woman that mm-hmm. turns out to be a fox, um, which like double score, dude, because that that would be cool. Like foxes are great, but um, probably not in practice, just on paper. I would want to be married <laughs> to a fox, I guess. But um, yeah, the, the, the foxes are, yeah, fo- foxes occupy that slippery space of the imagination. And I'm not quite sure whether I agree, but I really, with um, the idea of taming and everything, and I've looked into that word in mm-hmm. translation to see if there's like another definition that I'm not understanding. And it definitely is more complicated than tame in the English language, but it's pretty much what it sounds like. And I do, however, think that the sentiment of, look, we're all essentially the same, but when you love someone, they become special to you in all of these different reasons. I like that sentiment. And so I yes. take that from it. And I kind of resolve myself to, to quarrel with the other part of it for as long as I, I read this book. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the sort of taming that the that the fox is talking about is is more almost like um, relationship in general. Like you find someone who is running all around, and then you get to know both of your uniqueness. The fox knows yours; you know the fox's. Um, mm-hmm. So you that in that you in taming each other, you make each other special and unique because you did that together which I think mm-hmm. is sort of the, it's the togetherness. It's like two beings lifting each other up that I think is that sort of, it's, I think we have a a different viewing of what to ta- what, if you want to be tame anymore. Um, I think that maybe that was different in 1943 when perhaps <laughs> some, some um, tameness was welcome. <laughs> That's really true. But I like reading it now and and newly marveling at the fact that the the planet, for example, that has the businessman, still could be written today, and it would <laughs> it would mean exactly the same thing. And I I just I wish that he had lived longer and done more, so he would have been able to do more interviews about this book, so we could know more. 
right because he died basically just... as soon as it came out like right almost it was pu- for some it was pu- published posthumously it was only he was only barely alive for its release that's right and he was lost like yeah very very tragic the idea of a pilot to in literature is, is one that captures my imagination Roald Dahl was a pilot a lot of, there are like more than a couple children's authors who were pilots and it's interesting to think of them in this enclosed space with nothing but clouds and it makes sense to me that they would be thinking of stories during what probably to pilots becomes a rather monotonous and mundane task when i was a kid i loved Roald Dahl so much that i assumed that i too would have to become a pilot before I could be a writer. Um, you know, it's like, I thought, you know, that's the, that's one of the things you become a pilot and then you get to be a writer. I love that. I have taken flight classes. Oh, see? Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, okay, well now maybe I can write a children's book. Cause I, quali- <laughs> I maybe I qualify. Something else in this that I'm fascinated with is that this there's a 30,000 word draft out there somewhere that he whittled down to 15. Like it, he cut it in huh. half. And I'm fascinated by that of what was left on the cutting room floor because they have found versions where there's a couple more planets. I, I you know, all of this stuff is so interesting to me that you can <sighs> really dive into the, um, the worlds even further. Wow, I would give just about anything to read the full version. Right? Well, or or maybe not. Would that ruin something? I think I'm ready to be ruined. If so, I would like to read that. It doesn't kill the other version. <laughs> and it also made me think of George Saunders, too. Did you read um, The Brief and Wonderful Reign of Phil? It seems like this. it's another tiny planet world. And it, I was just like, there's no way that George Saunders didn't read The Little Prince to prep for writing this book. Oh, that's interesting. I think I have read that, but not for a while. I should go back and see and, and try to track all the little princiness that it contains. You mentioned briefly writing a children's book. Is that something you actually want to do or was that just a, a, a joke? I actually have written a children's book. Oh, wow. And I don't know if it will ever see the light of day. But I have written one. In fact, I wrote it during a time, one of the only times in my life when I found I could not write at all. And it was the way I tricked myself back into my practice. Um, I had gone 10 months and I wasn't able to write. Oh, my God. And I just, and I, I got a little bit desperate. I was, I was chill about it for a while because I actually don't believe in writer's block. Like I think most people who say they have writer's block don't. Um, <laughs> I think like, I think like life intervenes and like, you don't have to write every day. And I have an ex- a very expansive definition of what writing even is. So, but there were 10 months where I literally like, it was, it was almost like, a, a a panic response I could I actually couldn't write and it was because of a set of scathing notes I had received on a novel um and it just you know it just put a lot of fear in me so anyway long story short too late 
I decided to mix up my practice and just try something I had never done before, which was every morning I would wake up and I would write by hand into one of the copy books that so many well-intentioned friends had given me throughout the course of my life. Like, you know how, like, when they find out when, when, when lovely people find out you're a writer, they start giving you blank copy books. Sure. Yeah. And, and it's like leather, leather bound with like quotes from Audrey Hepburn on the top of every page and like embossed in gold. And you're like, this is so lovely. I could never write in this. I write on spiral bounds, like 50 cent copy books that you find at the dollar store Mm -hmm. with your next to your lip gloss. Anyway, every morning I would wake up and write into that and I figured, well, if I'm going to try to do something I've never done, why don't I try writing the children's book, the idea of which has been floating around in my head for a while. So I spent uh, two or three months writing out this children's book in this in this journal, and I still have it, but I've never shown it to anyone. I actually, I have such a high regard for writers of children's literature that I, it's actually something that I do feel like you have to kind of be qualified to do. Hmm. And so I have a lot of respect that's keeping me from, from showing it to anyone. Right. Well, you have to get your pilot's license first and then, then you'll be ready. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. So I don't have that yet. As soon as I do, I will show that book to my agent. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, lucky, lucky them. Well, I mean, I, I highly recommend to people to go back and revisit this if you are like me and thought you read it. And um, I, I mean, I really would have said, yes, I've read this book, but I hadn't really. You know, I really I really did translate it from French into English without reading or comprehending a word. So if you are like me and uh, found this book or like Adina um, in, in class, revisit it as someone who is just reading it. Um, it doesn't take much time. It's extremely short and it is, it sticks with you. It, it sneaks up on you the whole time. I'm so glad that you recommended it. To yeah. me. Oh, thanks for reading it. And let's talk recommendations in general. Do you have any recommendations for the good people listening? Oh, I have so many recommendations, but as far as book books go and like what I think, let's see, I'll tell you what I'm reading now. Um, oh, actually, wait, one I already read. One is um, coming out soon. It's called Bitter Water Opera by Nicolette Polek. And it's a Grey Wolf book. You know, they publish the most beautiful, beautiful books. And it's it's a room, it's a rumination of sorts, a poetic rumination on faith and God. Um, but it's told in this beautiful narrative about this woman's um this dancer's journey through Death Valley. It's so it's really, really cool and different. Um, I'm also about to read The Garden from Claire Beams, which is mm. coming out in March. And what I can recommend now that, that you can snap up is her last novel called The Illness Lesson, which was a sensational reading experience, like one of those immersive reading experiences where you can't wait to get back to the book. Loved that. And then the thing that I am actually reading right now, in addition to Milk, Blood, Heat, is Sarah Blakely Cartwright's Alice, Sadie, and Celine, which came out about a month ago. And this is cool because Alice, Sadie, and Celine um, is a book about a best friends who are in their 20s 
And one of the best friends begins to sleep with her other best friend's mother. Mm-hmm. So the names are the mother, the daughter, and the best friend. Ooh. And I'm I'm about I know, I know. It's I'm about a quarter of the way through and I'm really loving how good she is on the level of the physical. So there's a lot of like lust and desire and longing and um and soon I hope sex because that's fun. It's fun to it's fun to read sex. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't I don't write it very often. So it's really cool to read that kind of triangle between mother, daughter and best friend. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. those are my those are my recs. I'm not sure I've read a triangle like that before. It's really cool. Yeah. Cuz it's about those like it's like the ten poles are mother daughter relationship and female friendship. So it's really it's it's getting into some pretty delicious territory. Right, that's pretty fraught. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty fraught. Definitely something you could spend 350 pages on. Um that sounds great. Yeah, so so far so good. How about you, Christopher? What are your recs? I'm recommending I'm gonna recommend just one thing, just one book. Um Debbie Urbanski's novel Afterworld. Uh I had the sort of crazy experience of um of sort of finishing this book and then getting an email from the writer the author um saying like you should check out this book. I wrote it and you might like it. Um and She's right. I do like it. It was a really interesting novel um, narrated by AI who are trying to use the conventions of writing a novel to tell the story of the end of humanity. Um, And you're following one character who the AI is sort of like falling in love with as the course of the story continues. But it's really, it's interesting. The um, novel really talks about and is in conversation with dystopian literature you know the 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 writer of the book is you know thinking about station 11 and thinking about all sorts of like um current and older a dystopian fiction as they're putting the narrative together um and there's constantly like interruptions from how a novel should be constructed and structured as well as interesting stuff about the end of the world and and what and how we decided that it was okay for humanity to end. Um, and so there's like so many things going on with this oh, book. Wow. Like there's so many levels of like, there's stuff about AI, there's stuff about the end of the world, there's stuff about survival and what does it mean to survive? And do we get to choose our parents and mm-hmm. all of this stuff um, that is you know, an a potpourri and, sh- and it's like a popcorn, like it's popping off. You never know which subject is going to come next because it's so fragmented. So uh, it, mm. it sort of feels like the, um, the end of the dystopian novel conversation in some ways. It's like she wanted to like cover, the- <laughs> cover them all. And, you know, she kind of <laughs> did. So uh, it's going to be a while before I read another one. But this one really was a great, um, it was, it was a, fantastic read afterworld um by debbie urbanski afterworld and then great title too i am going to recommend a little novel beauty land it is so good Mm. i read it um in just like two sittings because i was so loving this character and this voice that you put together it was great to be back in your hands um so everybody Mm. needs to go and pick up this wonderful novel And thank you so much for hanging out and chilling with me. This has been amazing. 
Christopher, it is always so great to chat with you. I, it went so fast. I could have talked for another two hours. Thank you for inviting me back. Oh, absolutely. And to the people out there in the universe that are listening, um, I will be back in two weeks. I also really appreciate it when you go and support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash SMDB. Um, if you become a patron, new patrons get a bookmark sent to them in the mail, which is fun. It says, just stop to get a snack on it because that's really the reason anybody puts down a book, right? You just are going to stop to get a snack. Um, and you need your excuse on your bookmark, clearly. So you can get that at the Patreon and um, you probably get a sticker too. So support the show, read books, go buy Marie Helen Bertino's novels, all three of them and the short stories. Go go become a big reader of hers if you haven't yet. They're all fantastic novels. We didn't even talk about Parakeet and that was an incredible book. Uh, so yeah, go go read everything that she's written. <laughs> yes, please. 